Welcome to the CanMag Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. The CanMed 24 Innovation and Investment Summit returns to the JW Marriott Resort in Marco Island, Florida, May 12th through 15th. And we are excited to announce that registration opens October 6th. CanMed 23 was our first time at Marco Island and the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. The beach, the food, the amenities, the networking opportunities, and of course the content presented were all exceptional. And CanMed 24 is shaping up to be even better, featuring new dedicated networking events, new workshops, and a number of new faces sharing their latest research and innovations in the cannabis space. If you haven't yet, head over to canmedevents.com now to sign up for email alerts so you don't miss any of the announcements. I hope to see you in Florida this spring. My guest today is Dr. Danielle McCartney. Danielle is a postdoctoral research associate at the Lambert Initiative for Cannabinoid Therapeutics at the University of Sydney. Her main role is to coordinate clinical research into the effects of cannabis on simulated car driving performance. Danielle and her colleagues recently published a systematic review of 20 studies that examined the next day effects of THC. As the study states, the length of time an individual should wait following cannabis use before performing safety-sensitive tasks is a critical issue. Some government agencies and experts recommend individuals avoid performing safety-sensitive tasks for at least 24 hours. It should not surprise you to learn that the data suggests a much shorter impairment window. During our conversation, we discuss the different types of studies the authors reviewed and the criteria they used to evaluate them, the different tests administered to measure impairment, how next day effects of THC compare to the acute effects, how next day effects are different in medicinal cannabis patients versus recreational users, what methods are available to determine THC impairment in drivers, and what is the reasonable impairment window for THC. Before we get to my conversation with Danielle, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Medicine Women Health. Medicine Women's team of specialists includes medical doctors, naturopaths, medical cannabis experts, nutritionists, and alternative health practitioners. These integrative teams evaluate health issues and design targeted protocols to promote personal healing. Medicine Women's protocols have successfully alleviated symptoms of cancer, autoimmune diseases, and neurological conditions, as well as providing overall health rejuvenation. Learn more at medicinewomenhealth.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Danielle McCartney. Good morning, Danielle. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. All right. So you recently published, or you and your colleagues recently published a review of studies that have investigated 
the next day effects of THC on cognitive function and safety sensitive tasks, uh, which is a topic that has implications on a number of different policies, which I'm sure we're going to get into. But first, I'm curious to learn a bit more about your background and why you and your colleagues were interested in studying the next day effects of THC. Uh, yeah, so I'm a research fellow at the Lambert Initiative for Cannabinoid Therapeutics, which is a philanthropically funded centre for medicinal cannabis research uh, at the University of Sydney. Uh, and so the Lambert covers or uh, studies a whole wide range of different areas related to cannabinoids. Um, but I guess most of my research falls into the sort of cannabis and driving domain. So um, mm -hmm. the effects of cannabis and THC use is sort of a hot topic in that domain at the moment, uh, hence uh, our review. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have to say. Excellent. So you, you mentioned cannabis and driving, which is certainly... Um, a hot topic. Um, so, but again, let's maybe not get into that quite yet. So um, let's, let's talk about the results of your research. So how many different studies were you able to, to look at and what were sort of the, the main takeaways there? Yeah, so uh, as you said, our review looked at the what we considered to be next day effects of THC. So basically, we were looking to identify uh, any interventional studies, so studies where either cannabis or THC had been administered in some form, um, and then participants had been required to undertake um, or perform some kind of uh, either simulated safety-sensitive task, so things like driving or uh, there's some studies on simulated aeroplane flying, uh, or some more sort of standard and sort of common, I guess, um, computerised cognitive tasks, and there's a wide variety of, of those sorts of activities. And so to be included in the review, the studies had to have done this and measured performance uh, at least eight hours following cannabis use because that's sort of what we considered to be um, I guess, your typical overnight recovery period. And so studies, most of them administered the tasks between sort of eight and 12 hours following cannabis use. Mm. Um, and, and some administered all the way through. Um, often they conducted testing at multiple time points. So they might have measured at 12 hours and then 24 hours and sometimes all the way up to 48 hours. So we found uh, a total of 20 studies that had done this. Um, a lot were published quite some time ago. There was a little bit of recent work, but um, largely uh, historical. Uh, and they measured quite a number of different outcomes. I think it was um, several hundred uh, different sort of, or administered, sorry, several hundred different tasks. And that's across all the studies at all the different time points and um, under all the different cannabis conditions. So often the studies would administer one dose of THC on one study and, and a different dose on, on or sorry, one dose of THC on one arm of one study uh, and a different dose, a different arm in the same study. So you end up with like, you know, the amount of data sort of just uh, increases exponentially as you start to include these different arms and different time points. So yeah, it, it turned out to be a, a reasonably large uh, undertaking, um, but yeah, that's uh, what we included in our review. Okay. And what were the results? Are, were you finding that people were impaired after eight hours or, or no? Um, so the vast majority of studies showed no next day effects of THC. So that was across a um, variety of different cognitive tasks and um, safety sensitive uh, and safety sensitive, sorry, simulated safety sensitive tasks. 
there were a small number of studies that detected next day effects. Um, but I guess an important element of this review is not just to look at um, quantity, although there were an overwhelming majority showing no next day effects, but also look to look at the quality of the studies uh, and, and what they're sort of showing. And when we looked closely at this sort of small number of studies showing um, subtle next day effects, they tended to be not such good quality. So um, none of them were uh, randomized controlled trials, for example, which is our most rigorous form of uh, interventional study. Uh, and they often, um, uh, and they didn't tend to have the, um, employ the best sort of standardization procedures. So what I mean by that is we're really interested in making sure that the studies we um, were sort of reading into used, um, didn't allow their participants to sort of consume alcohol 24 hours prior mm. to, you know, undertaking tasks, caffeine, stay up all night, all of those things that can go on to affect cognitive function. We wanted to be sure that they had been controlled out of the sort of context. So um, basically, the, the gist is that the studies that did show next day effects, which there were very few of, um, tended not to be great quality, um, mm. whilst there was a couple uh, among those showing sort of no next day effects that were quite good quality. So that seems to be where the, the evidence is at the moment. Yeah, and I imagine they probably established some, some baseline uh, performance. And did they also study kind of acute effects effects of the THC2 and compare those? That's a really good question. So that was another element of our review. Um, so as you say, they admit, or as I've sort of said, that when they've administered their treatment, cannabis or THC or whatever they've chosen, um, often they'll administer these cognitive tasks or safety sensitive tasks at several different time points following use. And whilst our next day effects review was primarily interested in those tasks administered more than eight hours post THC use, we did also pull all of the data that were available on the more acute effects. So if they administered the same tasks one hour later or two hours later, mm -hmm. we, you know, much more likely expect uh, to see impairment. And the reason we did this was because we wanted to know, well, okay, if we're showing no next day effects, we want to know if that's, you know, if the studies have also seen acute effects, because if you haven't seen an acute effect, your probability of seeing a next day effect seems really, really sort of low. So by collecting the sort of acute data, we were able to get a little bit of insight into whether or not sort of the doses being administered were impairing to begin with, and if the tasks being used to assess impairment were sensitive to begin with. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get a lot of, uh, I guess there was quite a number of tasks that didn't show, or, or I guess um, uh, quite a bit of, what would you say, like our, we found that a lot of them didn't show acute effects, if that makes sense, or either didn't, didn't show or didn't measure acute effects. But I think 20% um, of our tasks did of uh, the task we identified. I hope that made sense. That was a bit confusing. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, it does. And I know I, and I looked at the, at the, um, the study that you published too, and it looks like there were quite a bit of different tests that were administered to sort of measure this. Um, and it looks like almost a dozen or so. Um, now are some of these better indicators than others? Um, what are your sort of your thoughts there? Um, Possibly, yes. I think uh, there are certain tasks that seem to stand out as being um, better for identifying impairment. I think um, one of our probably pref 
bird tasks would be, you know, um, simulated driving because it's um, sure. an ecologically valid way in which to look at impairment. You're taking someone and putting them in an activity that they would typically um, or that, that you don't want to see them impaired on. And so actually using that specific task is, is kind of ideal. Um, and the main thing that we look at when we're measuring um, sort of simulated driving performance is a marker called standard deviation of lane position, which is basically how much lateral movement the vehicle makes as it's moving along the road, so sort of swerving. And that mm. seems to be quite a sensitive measure of impairments. Um, other than that, uh, in terms of the computerized tasks, one of the areas um, that seems to show up quite a bit is uh, information processing speed seems to be uh, quite heavily affected by THC. Um, and so, for example, a task of information processing speed might be something um, one we use in the lab, and I'll see if I can explain it because it's always hard to explain to even participants, but I'll see if I can make sense <laughs> of it. But it's like a pattern generating task. So you see on the computer screen a series of patterns um, and then the computer will say, okay, I want you to produce pattern one and you have to use the keyboard to make that pattern. And so you're sort of identifying and then copying and coordinating a few responses. So that tends to be reasonably sensitive. Um, whereas kind of at the other end of the spectrum, our um, more sustained attention type focus tasks seem to show um, a little bit less impairment. Um, but yeah, it's hard to hard to compare. I mean, the main yeah. thing when you these kinds of tasks is that the participants are really thoroughly familiarized to them. Otherwise, you can kind of um, mask impairment with learning. So uh, as right. as recently, nah, that's really, really important. Okay. No, and it's interesting you say driving because that does seem to be, you know, sort of one of the main problems you're looking to solve for. So um, going back to kind of at least comparing the next day effects to the acute effects, what are you seeing in terms of acute effects uh, of THC on driving performance? Yeah, so it, it seems to vary somewhat um, depending on the population that you're studying, uh, right. dose THC used and the, the route of administration. Um, on average, we would, you know, sort of say that THC tends to be impairing uh, in the acute phase. Um, but uh, we do note that regular cannabis users seem to experience less THC-induced impairment than occasional cannabis users, likely due to the development of tolerance, mm -hmm. um, but also that lower doses seem to um, produce less impairment, uh, and the timing at which impairment peaks varies depending on whether THC has been inhaled, which usually right. you know, is quickly after, whereas uh, orally ingested takes longer for that impairment to sort of ensue. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up kind of inhaled versus edibles too. Does that, um, is there a difference in the next day effects of inhaled versus edibles as well? Because like you said, it does take longer to uh, to kick in usually with an edible. That's right, yeah. Um, so we've done a previous review looking at the duration of impairment that focused on the sort of less than, studies looking at the effects of THC less than 12 hours following use. And when we conducted that review, we did see that oral THC-induced impairment lasted longer than inhaled. Mm. Um, but the review predicted that impairment from orally administered sort of THC would still subside within um, sort of about eight hours, depending on the dose uh, provided. That was with about a 20 milligram um, oral dose. Um, looking at our current sort of next day effects review, we didn't sort of see any patterns of, you know, uh, studies that administer THC orally being more likely to detect impairment than those that administered THC by inhalation. 
Um, and it could just be because it was beyond that eight hour window. Um, all of them were relatively likely to be recovered within that time. So yeah, no real pattern emerged. Um, the main sort of driver seems to be the quality of the studies that we were looking at, to be honest. Hmm, interesting. So, and I know in the paper you you had said that, you know, whether it's some um, lawmakers or potentially employers, they sort of give some guidance of you shouldn't be driving or operating heavy machinery uh, within 24 hours of uh, using cannabis. But it seems like based on the research, that window is really eight hours. That's what our research seems to suggest, um, you know, provided the doses, you know, within reason. Uh, if right. you consume doses, it becomes a little bit more ambiguous. Um, but certainly 24 hours seems quite conservative. Um, right. And not a lot of data to support that as far as we can find. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and it's a good point too. And I think one that you brought up earlier is the difference between a medical cannabis user and, a, I guess, a, an adult use recreational user. Um, one of them is certainly looking for an altered effect, which would probably produce impairment, whereas the other one's looking for a therapeutic effect, which might be at a lower dose. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point to raise. So all of the research included in our next day effects paper was based on um healthy individuals who use cannabis, I don't know, some of them occasionally, some of them regularly, but all for um, primarily sort of for recreational purposes. Um, and that's just on the basis that there was no studies looking at medicinal cannabis users. Uh, and that is basically the picture across the driving sort of space in cannabis and um, the, the research area in driving in cannabis. And there's very little research looking at medicinal cannabis users. So as you say, that population could respond quite differently, you know, when compared to recreational users, medicinal cannabis users are often, you know, they, they're using the products on a very regular basis. So there's good opportunity to develop tolerance to its impairing effects. They're typically using lower doses to, you know, avoid rather than induce intoxication. Mm. And they're also experiencing a clinical benefit, you know, some improvement in symptoms that might you know, themselves impair driving. So things like pain and insomnia. So it's definitely an area um, that uh, warrants for the sort of exploration and something that we're very interested in. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that, um, you know, a former a CanMed uh, presenter, Dr. Stacy Gruber, I know that she has done some work in this, in this area. And she's even demonstrated that some medical cannabis users perform better in cognitive tests um, after taking cannabis. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things going on here. Yeah, like I said, it's a really interesting area and they could react quite differently. So I'm um, yeah, not totally surprised by that finding. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And so it all goes, comes back to this idea of, um, I guess, trying to keep impaired drivers off the road. And, you know, and it seems that lawmakers or uh, law enforcement is really kind of fixated on, on finding a, a biomarker to kind of determine cannabis impairment, sort of like a blood alcohol or breathalyzer. Um, to your knowledge, are there any biomarkers that are reliable or that were that were close on for determining cannabis impairment, or is that still a bit of a holy grail? Yeah, like if you're talking biological, like in some kind of fluid biomarkers, uh, at present, no, we just uh, we don't really have anything that's particularly good. So the most commonly looked at things are probably urine, blood, and oral fluid. Urine um, is probably the worst of the lot. We know that um, THC and its metabolites um, 
persist in urine for a really, really long time, particularly among regular users, you know, comfortably over a month. Um, blood is, is not particularly good either. It can hang around in blood for extended periods of time. Uh, and this is largely because THC, um, so it's a lipophilic molecule, meaning that it likes to get into fat and sort of stay there. So it accumulates in uh, people's fat stores and then just sort of slowly leaches into blood, meaning that it can be there for, again, weeks uh, and sometimes longer after use. Oral fluid is a tricky matrix. Um, it sort of has some benefits, I guess, in that it is the matrix that THC leaves most rapidly. Um, so if you take someone who only very occasionally uses cannabis and administer an acute dose, um, you probably find that it persists in oral fluid for a few hours and then dissipates, um, which is kind of consistent with impairment. But there are a number of kind of significant limitations aside from that. Um, for example, the first being that uh, so the only way that THC can end up in oral fluid is if it enters via direct contact. So you have to, you know, have it smoked or, you know, ingested it in some way that it actually contacts the oral fluid, meaning that if you avoid that contact, say, for example, if the THC is encapsulated, um, you probably won't have any THC in oral fluid, um, mm. which means it's not a marker of impairment at all. The other factor is that there's been really little research looking at um, oral fluid THC concentrations in regular cannabis users. Um, and what seems to be the case is that whether THC is present in oral fluid in regular cannabis users is just a, it's completely variable. Sometimes it's there 12 hours later, sometimes it's not detected, and it's just um, a little bit all over the shop. So on the face of it, there are some advantages to that approach, but when you dig a little deeper, it sort of falls apart really quickly. So, yeah, um, we don't currently have a, a particularly good way of identifying cannabis-impaired drivers. Now, would something like a field sobriety test be a good stand-in? Yeah, that's certainly the direction that we're heading. You know, if you want to measure or identify impairment, the thing that you maybe want to be looking for is impairment. Um, and right. that's what the tests are able to tell us the tricky thing is um identifying something that can be carefully standardized across a lot of people so for example you know if a police officer um, asks people to stand on one leg you know you're going to get huge variations in how people are able to do that and mm. you know it might depend on you um certain disabilities could affect it and all kinds of different things um even just age so um you know that's not going to be, you can't stand there with a stopwatch and time someone and go, oh, you know, you're impaired because you didn't stay on your leg for as long as what is typically average. Um, so we need to look for uh, biological, sorry, behavioral tests that vary sort of not very much from one person to the next because we just don't have a baseline measure or a drug-free measure to compare against in the real world. Um in workplace settings where they often also perform sort of drug testing to, to screen out um, impairment, uh, baseline measures may be an option um, because people come back in every day and can test mm. them regularly. That might be um, a little bit of an easier uh, sort of question to answer. But I do think we're kind of heading in the right direction with the behavioural tests and possibly some combination of a behavioural and bio biological test might give us kind of the answer that we're looking for where, you know, if you don't perform so well on the behavioural test, you're given the drug test and, you know, you have to have a look at the results of that. But, yeah, we'll just have to sort of see. There's a lot of interest in that area and a lot of work being done. So hopefully we can find something. Yeah, and I have to imagine, like you said, 
the goal here is to keep impaired drivers off the road, regardless of if, if it's cannabis or alcohol or uh, yeah. opioids or anything like that. So having a a way to identify impairment, like, again, regardless of the of the source is really the goal. Exactly. I mean, fatigue is a huge uh, problem yeah. on the road and we don't have a biomarker for that. So if it just so happens that, you know, you can, you know, pick that, pick things like that up as well and, and discourage people from driving just in general whilst impaired, that, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So your findings being that um, we don't really have good evidence that cannabis users eight hours after, after using show any signs of impairment. So what sort of implications do those results have on, um, you know, how employers set their drug testing policies or even how patients or clinicians um, either recommend cannabis or use it? Um, so in terms of patients and clinicians, I guess, I mean, ultimately how um, people take their medicine has to be uh, dictated by their clinical need. Um, but I guess what our research suggests is that if they are using um, THC-containing products in the evening um, before bed, which I think is quite common for people with pain and insomnia and things like that, um, they should have relatively normal function the next day. Um, whether or not that's something or a factor that clinicians want to take into account when prescribing um, or, or recommending uh, dosing regimes, that's um, their discretion. But uh, at least that's something that they can use to inform their, their decision-making, hopefully. Um, in terms of policy for workplaces and things like that, um, I mean, they face a very similar problem to, to the roadside drug testing where, you know, our research would suggest that people who use medicinal cannabis are, are relatively okay to function the next day, um, but they are still employing the biomarkers that can produce positive tests and we don't have a behavioural alternative. So it's a tricky thing to, to sort of work with. I mean, our data suggests that if people are using their uh, medicinal product in the evening, they should be fine to function the next day. We'll see what they do with that information. Right. And now you mentioned too that in looking at these studies, a lot of them were maybe poorly designed or didn't have proper controls and things like that. So I guess I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here, but if you were to design the perfect study, um, what would that look like? Oh, tricky. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it depends a little bit on your population. So maybe we'll start with, um, you know, healthy individuals who might use cannabis recreationally. I think there were, there were a couple of quite good studies that our review identified in this space. Um, and uh, I think a similar design to what they've employed would be appropriate where you sort of I think you take um, your, your population of healthy individuals who use cannabis occasionally, um, allow them to um, consume cannabis probably as they usually would, um, sort of ad libitum uh, in quantities that, that reflect their usual use, mm. um, and then keep them overnight in a sleep lab or something like that, uh, and then look at function the next day. Um, I think ideally, I mean, in a, in a fictional world, you'd probably, um, and I say fictional because in Australia, you're not allowed to do this, um, but yeah. you'd, you'd probably use an on-road driving test um, to assess impairment. And I know that's something that they're experts at over in the Netherlands. Um, uh, 
because it's you know super ecologically valid and and um, sensitive to impairment and you know well researched and things like that. So that would be a great way I think to look at next day impairment. Um, and the overnight sort of um, component ensures that participants aren't you know out doing things that you don't want them doing during that overnight period, continuing to use cannabis, um, you know drinking alcohol, staying up all night, all of those things can um, affect the results of the study. So I think that would be um, one approach. I think the medicinal um, uses is a bit uh, more complex to study. Uh, I think, I mean, maybe ideally you'd take uh, people who were just initiating um, treatment uh, and titrate them up to a dose that they find efficacious, whatever that may be, um, and then assess performance once they're on that sort of maintenance dose, um, either you know, 12 hours later or 12 hours following placebo. Maybe you'd even have a couple of arms um, where people weren't um, sort of chronically treated um, initially, put them on a placebo, titrate them up to a therapeutic dose uh, and then administer either THC and placebo and look at impairment. So that would give you, give you sort of four groups to, to mm. compare. But that one would be quite the undertaking. Um, yeah. Need, need some funds to support that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so I guess there is a difference between measuring impairment the following day and the, the quote unquote cannabis hangover. Um, I imagine there's a difference there, right? You could still feel some after effects the following day, but it might not necessarily be impair impairing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and this is why we've used the phrase next day effects throughout because it's really blurry as to whether or not we're looking at, you know, the, I guess, tail end of impairment or if we're looking at um, hangover kind of effects. Um, you know, when you study alcohol hangover, you can, you know, administer a dose of alcohol and then test that someone has a breath alcohol concentration of zero and you know that okay we're no longer measuring the acute effects of alcohol we're now measuring the effects of alcohol hangover that's really blurry in the cannabis mm. space um so hence the term next day effects Interesting. Uh, yeah um so we can't completely separate them but um i know uh so one of the, um, she's now a postdoc here, but uh, at the time she was a PhD student, she recently completed a, a RCT looking at um, the, uh, I mean, the primary aim of the, the trial was to look at the effects of THC and insomnia or medicinal cannabinoids in insomnia. But she did look at the sort of next day effects following evening dosing. And um, I believe there was a subtle effect um, for the treatment to increase next day feelings of sedation, which mm -hmm. might kind of capture some of those measures you're talking about. But interestingly, when they administered the um, what's called the maintenance of wakefulness test, which is the most boring task that you can ever administer, <laughs> basically participants have to stare at a wall for 45 minutes and try not to fall asleep. Um, they did that several times the next day, those poor participants, um, and it's considered sort of the most, um, or it's considered an, an objective measure of next day alertness or, or things like that. And so despite having that subtle increase in sedation, maybe that was the wrong thing, but that, that was sort of what they reported, um, they didn't detect any effects on the maintenance of wakefulness tests. So um, you, you could be right where you can feel possibly um, not 100%, but still be functional if that makes sense yeah 
Yeah, that's actually that's actually interesting. And it goes in line with the, what we were talking about with fatigue being um, a problem with driving performance. Um, so that, you know, even if you weren't under the acute effects of cannabis, but you were fatigued as a result, that would be an issue too. But it sounds like that's that's not the case. They can stare at the wall for 45 minutes and not fall asleep. Yeah, I mean, that was with a good night's sleep. Maybe I'll, I'll let them <laughs> Um, discuss that once the publication has officially come out. I probably uh, shouldn't share too much, but yeah, really interesting findings there. And that's, that's still to come. Excellent. Well, speaking of things to come, um, I'm curious um, what research you're, you're working on now and what we can uh, expect to see. Oh, um, so a few different things, but I guess the overall theme is that we're interested in moving into the, you know, medicinal cannabis user sort of space um, within the context of, of driving and safety sensitive tasks so um, as you've said there's this issue of you know biomarkers of impairment how do we identify um, uh, that on the roads so that's something that we're interested in we're also interested in you know whether medicinal cannabis are users are in fact impaired um, when they use their treatment um, as instructed under you know careful medical supervision um, so that's something that we, we'd like to investigate further um, and yeah, that's probably the main sort of themes at the moment. So before I let you go, um, I wanted to give you the opportunity to share any other resources that are sort of related to the topics that we talked about. And I'll be happy to put them in the show notes for people to learn more. Or if there's a, a website or any way to get in touch with you, if people uh, want to connect, please plug away. Oh, um, <laughs> um, I guess we have the Lambert Initiative website. So I'm sure if um, people go to Google and type in Lambert Initiative, they'll be able to find that. And that should link people to our ongoing clinical trials, um, probably our sort of Twitter page, and that's quite um, active at the moment, uh, and should allow you to get in touch with um, any of the researchers at the Lambert Initiative that you might like to speak to. So that's probably a, a good point of call. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to put a link to the study in the show notes so people can can dig into the data. All right, Danielle, thanks again for, for getting up early and talking to us. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we can do this again soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Ben. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Danielle McCartney. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Medicine Women Health. Our next episode drops October 4th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please like, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you use to listen to or watch us. Also, please check out canmedevents.com to sign up for email alerts and learn more about our annual Innovation and Investment Summit. That's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us on the next CanMed Coffee Talk.